1955, Vice President of J.P. Morgan Chase, Robert Gordon Wasson, traveled to Mexico seeking proof of the existence of hallucinogenic mushrooms. At this point, you're all probably wondering, why the hell is a U.S. banker trying to find psychedelic mushrooms? And why did he have to travel to another country to do so? Well, at this point in time, psychedelics weren't exactly all the rage in America yet. And as it turns out, Wasson and his wife had actually spent about three decades trying to find out more about the use of psychedelics in a cultural context, specifically that of native and indigenous peoples around the world. Wasson himself said, quote, we were not interested in what people learn about mushrooms from books, but what untutored country folk know from childhood, the folk legacy of the family circle, end quote. Wasson would be successful in finding what he was seeking, but two years later, he'd publish an article that would change the fate of America. His ridiculously iconic piece titled Seeking the Magic Mushroom would become so famous that it would lead to the destruction of a native woman's reputation, the birth of psychedelic culture in America, and the desecration of the velada ceremony in Mexico. Hi, my name is Marilyn, and welcome to the Psychedelic 60s. By now, most, if not all, of us have probably heard something about the 1960s and the counterculture that defined the decade. And of course, you can't exactly talk about the 60s without talking about the drug culture that came along with them. However, I think it's important that I start off by clarifying that the story of how psychedelics became so integral to American counterculture isn't exactly all fun and games. It's actually a tale of exploitation, disrespect for cultural practices, and white privilege. In the summer of 1955, Watson found himself in a Oaxacan village named Huatla de Jimenez. There, he found Maria Sabina, known as a curandera, or a healer. Now, according to timeline, Maria had regularly ingested the native mushrooms since she was about seven years old. And as a healer, she had performed a mushroom ceremony known as Avalada for more than 30 years, which is long before Watson even came into the story. A velada is a sacred masatic ritual in which the participants have to stay up all night. The purpose of consuming the mushrooms during the ritual is to connect and speak with God in order to heal the sick. If they're successful, then the spirits would tell the healer how to restore the sick back to health. When Wasson met Maria Sabina, she was hesitant to let him participate in the velada because he and his photographer weren't ill, so there really wasn't any reason for them to ingest the mushrooms. She's quoted to have stated that, Wasson and his friends were the first foreigners who came to our town. They didn't take them because they suffered from any illness. Their reason was that they came to find God, end quote. In 1957, Wasson would publish a photo essay for Life magazine detailing his experience with Avelada. The piece would gain so much publicity that Life would start financing even more trips to Huatla de Jimenez. Wasson would even become an oblivious aide to the CIA's MK Ultra project when they started sponsoring his trips to Mexico. Doesn't sound too bad, right? Except that they try to cover it up by sending the money through some fake organization named the Guest Sticker Fund for Medical Research. All the rage around the essay would eventually lead Westerners to flock to Huatla de Jimenez seeking out Maria Sabina. An article by Ahmed Cabil quotes Maria to have said, I realized the young people with long hair didn't need me to eat the little things. Kids ate them anywhere and anytime and they didn't respect our customs, end quote. Her own village, which had once praised and respected her, blamed her for the defilement of the Masatec Veladas. At one point, they even burned down her house, which had often been raided by federal agents who were looking for drugs. At the age of 91, she died penniless, 
never having received any compensation from Wasson, Life Magazine, or the U.S. government. Seeking the Magic Mushroom would eventually make its way to clinical psychologist and Harvard professor Dr. Timothy Leary, who after reading the article traveled to Cuernavaca, Mexico in 1960. Leary was able to get some shrooms from a local healer, but he went to his summer villa and ingested them by his fancy pool instead of participating in a velada ritual. He thought that the consumption of psychedelics could revolutionize psychology, psychiatry, and overall change the world. Inspired by his experience while tripping on psilocybin mushrooms, Leary came back to the U.S. and established the Harvard Psilocybin Project in collaboration with Dr. Richard Alpert. From 1960 to 1962, Leary and Alpert conducted experiments in which they administered psychedelics to test subjects and students in order to understand how drugs like psilocybin, mescaline, and LSD affect human mind and human behavior. In 1962, Leary would take LSD for the very first time, and the experience would blow his mind. According to an article in the Journal of American Culture by Chris Elcock, the trip would lead Leary to, quote, embrace a postmodern conception of reality. To him, the psychedelic experience was proof that other levels of reality existed beyond the ordinary state of consciousness, and that what was thought to be reality was nothing but a social consensus, end quote. Leary saw that the experience of tripping to be an agent in reinventing the self. In his perspective, LSD could allow people to expand their perspective and essentially take a look at themselves through a wider view. In turn, people could become more conscious about their actions and decisions, and eventually they could challenge social constructs and customs. And as cliche as it sounds, they could basically make the world a better place. David Farber even wrote that Leary essentially decided that LSD allows people to rethink what they had become and, quote, reinvent themselves according to a deeper, truer, drug-produced set of understandings. After a while, though, these experiments started to get out of hand. There was no longer any structure to them, and the university started to grow concerned when they discovered that Leary and Albert were actually providing their own students with the same drugs that were intended for research. There was no longer any control, and there was a very clear lack of responsibility and academic respect. According to Farber, this, combined with the Harvard Psilocybin Project's disregard for behavioral science and Leary's inability to meet the teaching requirements outlined in his contract, eventually resulted in the termination of the project and the removal of Leary from Harvard University in 1962. Richard Alpert would be removed a year later in 1963. However, Leary was a well-respected, affluent white man who had connections, so of course this wasn't going to be a huge deal for him. Unlike Maria Sabina, he was able to keep his platform and his reputation, and he was still able to secure funding for his research afterwards. According to Vice Media, Margaret Peggy Hitchcock of the Mellon family, who was also the heiress to the Gulf oil fortune, gave Leary an entire estate to continue his research. He would even go on to create his own religion called the League for Spiritual Discovery, which is ironically abbreviated as LSD. For Leary, getting fired from Harvard was basically just a little bump in the road at this point. In 2016, Harvard's student-run newspaper, The Crimson, revealed that psychedelics were still ever-present on campus even after Leary's removal. Even today, college students at Harvard and across America experience with psychedelics and other types of drugs in their undergraduate careers. Leary's impact on American counterculture, art, and music was immensely significant. 
Throughout my research, I found several articles that refer to him as the Pied Piper of the psychedelic 60s, and one even called him America's LSD Messiah. When I say his influence was huge, I'm talking like, allegedly, even former President Richard Nixon called him the most dangerous man in America. By 1967, Leary would coin his famous public relations slogan called, Turn On, Tune In, and Drop Out. Of course, he meant it as turn on your brain, tune into the world around you, and drop out of commitments that are irrelevant and or damaging to your wellness. However, the media kind of twisted it and interpreted it as something along the lines of drop out of society, get stoned 24-7, and trip all day. Something to note about the counterculture during this time period is that it wasn't as unpopular as the root word counter makes it out to be. If anything, psychedelic culture in particular was prevalent in society. Edward Rothstein of the New York Times described the LSD archetype during the 60s as, quote, descend into madness and emerge enlightened, end quote, seeing the world anew and everything. With everything else going on in the 60s, like the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, etc., psychedelics provided an outlet from the harsh reality of the real world. They also allowed youths to sort of rebel against their parents, the government, and any other form of authority that they wished to challenge. In the intoxicated state slash the illegal nation, it's explained that Americans began to attach a meaning to the consumption of the drugs they were taking, and also the type of drugs that they were taking. There was a very clear difference in what it meant to consume illegal drugs and what it meant to consume legal drugs. In my perspective, I feel like this sort of ties back to the individuals who were seeking some type of aid or agent in their journey towards enlightenment. But instead, it seems like they found a crutch to lean on while they attempted to break through social norms and also reroute the direction of the culture in America. But of course, when white upper class youth start to get involved in not so good things, there's suddenly an issue. And that issue unfortunately resulted in the media launching a smear campaign against psychedelics. However, for the purpose of this episode, I'm only going to be focusing on the media's vilification of LSD throughout the 60s. I want to begin by emphasizing that the violent behavior among LSD users was actually pretty rare. According to Farber, only about 2% of LSD users had severe psychological or emotional reactions during their trips. And out of that 2%, only about a third had a psychotic break as a result of taking LSD. However, the manner in which the news reported on violent episodes of LSD users kind of made it seem like all LSD users were these crazy dangerous individuals who could snap and injure or even kill someone at any given moment. In 1966, the New York Times published a special article titled A Slaying Suspect Tells of LSD Spree, Medical Student Charged with Mother-in-Law's Death. The article details how a 30-year-old man who had dropped out of medical school brutally murdered his partner's mother while tripping on acid. Throughout the piece, the language and word choice of the author reflects an attempt to dehumanize the suspect by calling him a dropout and providing details of the victim's life in order to generate a more emotional reaction from the intended audience. Three days later, Murray Schumach reported on Sandoz Pharmaceutical's decision to recall all of the LSD supplies that had been sent out to professors and scientists for research purposes. At this point in history, Sandoz was the only legal distributor of LSD in the entire United States. So you can imagine the impact that their decision had on all of America. Schumach even attributed the decision to the events that happened only a few days before, 
writing that the subject of LSD was dramatized by a homicide in Brooklyn after a former medical student with a hospital record as a user of LSD was charged with killing his mother-in-law. Another work that I wanted to discuss was published in December of that same year, only about eight months after Sanos's decision to recall their products. Titled Villanova Teacher Held Became Violent on LSD, the article detailed how William Lupton, a 27-year-old English teacher at Villanova University, was detained by the local police. Mrs. Lupton, his wife, had chased her husband after he ran out of the house unexpectedly, but decided to call for help when she realized that she wasn't going to be able to catch him by herself. She explained that William had tripped on LSD about two summers before these events and that they both believed it improved his behavior and personality. Unfortunately, the effects this time around were pretty drastic. William started to get violent, he punched a hole through a window, and then he started trashing the furniture in their home before he left abruptly. Two months later, Gladwin Hill published an article that he called, Turn On, Tune In, and Drop Out. LSD users describe their experiences during a psychedelic trip. Now, just from the title, you'd probably assume that it, you know, it would have LSD users describing their experiences during psychedelic trips, right? Sounds like a pretty reasonable assumption, right? Wrong. This article doesn't even have a single testimonial or description that is directly from an LSD user. There's a few pictures with quotes and descriptions from the book LSD, written by Albert Cohen and Schiller, but that's about it. And at first, I was kind of hesitant to label this as propaganda, but propaganda is defined as information that is of a biased or misleading nature, and it's usually used to promote or publicize um, a certain political cause or perspective or point of view. And this article seems like it was very intentional in the sense that it's directed at inciting fear and worry surrounding LSD use in the U.S., especially among younger generations. However, there's not exactly any concrete facts throughout the article. Everything is basically an assumption or a guess. Hill writes, quote, One LSD expert guesses that LSD use has extended to no more than 1% of the population, end quote. But there's not any research provided to back this up. There's more of a lot of he said, she said, and I heard from this one that this person did this. He also includes the fact that drug arrests of adults have risen to nearly 25,000 a year and that 40% are marijuana cases. However, at this point in time, there wasn't enough research on statistics to provide the... However, I think it's important to note that this statistic isn't exactly accurate because at this point there wasn't statistics available that determine the percentage of which drugs were being used. While the drug arrest did rise to 25,000 a year, there wasn't as much information available to explain what percent was LSD, what percent was marijuana, or what percent was another drug. By 1968, we're going to start to see more parents take to the media to publicly express concerns about their children and their use or involvement with drugs and psychedelics. And this, of course, is because parents are starting to worry about their children's health, their well-being, whether that be physical or mental. And they're also starting to worry that their drug use would eventually turn their children away from them. And not only would it turn it away from them emotionally, it turned them away from their parental authority and, I guess, their so-called productive lives when they're out here trying to break down social constructs and 
defeat the traditional culture that they've been exposed to, they're not exactly going to be following their parents' rules or the government's rules or anybody's rules for that matter, unless it's their own. One of the most popular articles written during this time was McLean Roberts' essay titled My Son is on LSD, which was published in the Ladies' Home Journal magazine. Roberts explains that their son Jerry was this great kid that got good grades on his exams, and he had this special talent for working with electronics. Jerry also had a bunch of friends and hobbies that he was passionate about, so of course it came as a surprise to his parents when they found out that he had been tripping on acid at an alarming rate. Similarly, an article by the Washington Post features an LSD user's mother describing that she was completely blindsided when her son revealed that he regularly took LSD. She's quoted to have said, after all, he had all the advantages of wealth and good schools, and he was popular, and he was a leader with a creative and decisive mind, end quote. The manner in which both of these parents describe how their children's privilege had no effect on their decision to start using LSD really goes to show how they held a negative perspective towards minorities from underserved communities. Roberts explains how switching Jerry to a different school was unhelpful because the drug plague had spread from the city to the suburbs. Now, as most people know by now, during the 60s, the only people who could afford to live in the suburbs were typically white and affluent. Roberts writes that, quote, interviews with hippies indicated that they are largely losers and misfits who have not had notable success at anything in their earlier lives, end quote. Since we know he's not talking about white rich people, we can assume that he's talking about people of color and native groups that have participated in the use of psychedelics and that have used psychedelics as part of sacred rituals. In the same essay, McLean describes how he took Jerry along with him on a writing assignment trip to the Caribbean. And once he and his wife started seeing that Jerry was improving in terms of quitting his use of LSD, they allowed him to go on a camping tour of the Rockies in the summer. But that very clearly goes to show how their privilege still benefited them in spite of the effects that Jerry's LSD use affected their family. <laughs> but I think this really goes to show how privilege is still affecting everyone at this point. I mean, not everyone can afford to randomly go on a vacation and escape from reality every time they make a mistake or screw up. Jerry's decisions had a very clear impact on his family and his relationship with his mother and his father. And yet, he still had the benefit of being able to go on two separate vacations. The following month after Robert's essay was published, February 1968, Dr. James Goddard publicly, although quite hesitantly, supported a bill that would actually increase charges for individuals who were caught making and or selling LSD and other drugs. He also supported a section of the bill that would make it a felony charge for individuals who were caught in possession of these drugs, even if it was their first offense. In the process of drafting the bill, some federal officials had suggested that since there were no laws in place regarding the manufacturing, distribution, and consumption of these sort of drugs, then people would start to incorrectly assume that the government was supporting their drug use. Dr. Goddard was the commissioner of the Federal Food and Drugs Administration, so his public support for the bill only contributed to the public's already negative perspective towards LSD. The way I see it, Goddard was the boss man, and whenever the boss man says something is bad, then everyone is going to assume that it's bad. However, I want to throw in a disclaimer and explain that Goddard was actually against the criminalization of drugs. 
He believed that promoting awareness and establishing education programs would be a better deterrence method, but unfortunately, too many people disagreed with him. From Godard's point of view, the implementation of these drugs would do nothing to deter anyone from their drug use. In an article with the New York Times, he's quoted to have explained that estimates of the current increased use of marijuana were cor- if they were bleh. However, I want to throw in a disclaimer and explain that Goddard was actually against the criminalization of drugs. He believed that promoting awareness and establishing education programs to let people become more aware of the hazards that came with drug use would be a much better deterrence method. But unfortunately, too many people disagreed with him. From Goddard's point of view, the implementation of these due laws wouldn't really be helpful at all. In an article with the New York Times, He's quoted to have said that if current estimates of the increased use of marijuana were correct, then the very severe penalties for possession of it would seem to have very little deterrent effect, end quote. And if this is the case for marijuana, what is making people assume that it's not the case for LSD, heroin, and psilocybin mushrooms and everything else that was intended to be banned by this bill? And while I agree with Dr. Goddard in the sense that criminalization is ineffective, I'm not so sure that increased awareness and informational programs will be any more effective either. It's been decades since the 60s, and yet we're still seeing people experiment with psychedelics, especially acid and shrooms. And despite the fact that there's an increase in drug awareness programs like D.A.R.E., it's still pretty common to see this romanticization of hard drugs, even in the present day. Nowadays, we know more about the effects of psychedelics like how they can induce early-onset psychosis in people with a history of schizophrenia in their family, or how ingesting psychedelics while taking antidepressants can lead to serotonin syndrome and mess with your brain. And yet, people are still chasing that high, regardless of the potential harm it could cause. Reality is that neither criminalization nor increased awareness will ever be 100% effective at deterring young people or any people away from drugs. At the end of the day, it's up to the individual to make their own decisions. Thank you for listening.